Corner Fringe Ministries presents The Hell of Torah, Part 6, with Daniel Joseph. Well, today we are going to finish up our Hell of Torah series. Now, over the course of the series, we've looked at the fact that, well, the law of God, it isn't necessarily something that's been done away with, right? But rather, it's something that is still valid for us today. And not just valid for today, but as we discovered in the series, it's something we've discovered that it's going to be valid in the age to come. Because as we transition from this age into the age to come, something happens. Something takes place. What happens? Judgment, right? As we move from this age to the age to come, judgment happens. And make no mistake, it is the law of God that is going to be the measuring line in that judgment. Mankind is going to be judged by the law. And that judgment is going to be manifested through fire. And that fire is what we've been calling the hell of Torah. However, today... We're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to end this series in a a little different manner in regard to the fire of Torah. And uh, the manner by which we're going to do this is I actually alluded to this briefly earlier on in the series. And I will explain this as we go. But what we're going to do is we're going to take a, we're going to go to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 3. And here... John the Baptist, he's going to explain the superiority of Yeshua's ministry over his own. All right? Listen to what he says. Yochanan answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. Here we're told... That John the Baptist, he's very clear what would happen to those who put their faith in Yeshua. Those who follow, those who commit, who believe in him, they're going to be baptized with fire. It's the fire of the Ruach HaKodesh. It is the fire of Torah. This is none other than the promise of the new covenant. That's what this is. A covenant where the Torah would literally burn as a fire in our hearts. And the effect of this burning... How it changes us, it transforms us. We get this uncontrollable desire to start keeping his commandments. To start doing the things he has commanded us to do. To walk in righteousness, right? This is what's supposed to happen to those who put their faith and trust in Yeshua. They are to have the fire of Torah in their heart. Listen to what the psalmist says in 104. Listen to how he describes the servants of the living God. This is how he describes them. Bless the Lord, all my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. You cover yourself with light as with a garment who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds his chariot, who walks on the wings of the wind, who makes his angel spirits, his ministers, or you could say servants, a flame of fire. What does he do? He makes his ministers a flame, a fire, literally a blaze, a torch. This is what is supposed to happen to us when we commit our lives to Yeshua. 
We're supposed to go out into the world as a fire. We should be igniting everything that comes near us. We should be testing everything in our path. We should be refining everything and everyone who we come in contact with. We should be refining them, putting righteousness on a pedestal. The question is, is can people feel the heat when they approach you? Do they feel the fire? You know, I don't know if you caught this, just coming off of Sukkot and going camping, there's a common theme. I noticed it. Maybe none of you did, but I noticed it. The common theme is everyone was huddling around the fire. You notice that? Everyone's like this, huddling around the fire. Why? They wanted the heat. You were there to be warmed, right? The question is, are people coming to you like that? Are they coming to you to feel that heat, right? Feel the warmth, that fire of Torah, the fire and passion you have for Yeshua in your heart? Today, I want to look at what it means to possess the fire of Torah. I want to show you from a scriptural standpoint what it looks like to truly walk out Torah. I want you to see it the way Yeshua sees it. So when he looks down and he sees through all of you, he knows who you are. He knows your hearts. But there's, there's something that we're going to be able to see. By the fruits, you will know them. There's things that you will do. Unequivocally, will answer, you are Torah observant. It might be a little bit different than what you think. The way I'm going to do this, the way I'm going to present this today is through a parable. It's a parable found also in the Gospel of Luke. As we get to the 10th chapter, we find a lawyer Nomikos in the Greek is literally means a lawyer of law. He's a, he's a lawyer. He is an expert in Torah. He comes to Yeshua. And one thing you really got to understand is the backdrop. And when I say an expert in Torah, this is a man who devoted his life to Torah, to the study of Torah. He studies Bereshit. He studies Genesis. He studied the creation. He studied the fall of man. He studied the birth of a nation. He knows his heritage. He has studied it. He has taught it. He knows all about the Exodus. He knows all about the power of the living God, how he delivered Israel out of the hands of the Egyptians. He knows all about that meeting on Mount Sinai. Experts in the law, lawyers, lawyers of Torah, devoted their lives to the study of the word. Keep that in context as we go to this parable. So as we enter in verse 25, this, this attorney, this lawyer, he presents himself to Yeshua to test him. Listen to what he says in verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the Torah? What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? This is a fascinating response. The man asked Yeshua the $64 million question. There's no more important question he could possibly ask. Because all that matters, all that should matter to you is, how do I get from corruptibility to incorruptibility? How do I get from mortality to immortality? From here to Shemaim, to heaven. How do we do that? This is the question. 
He's a very astute lawyer. He knows what he's talking about here. It is clear to me, you always know where people are coming from by the questions they ask. I can tell you this, I'm already impressed. Because he cut to the heart of the matter, right? How does Yeshua respond to this $64 million question? He responds in a very traditional Jewish manner by posing another question. And what is that? What is written in the law? How powerful is that? The man comes out and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does Yeshua do? Takes him back to the law. What does that tell you about Torah? I'll tell you what it tells me. The secret to eternal life is in the pages of Torah. The secret to eternal life is in the pages of Torah. There's something else I want to point out here. Yeshua doesn't just ask, or he doesn't just ask what is in the law. He follows it with another question. He clarifies it even further. What is your reading of it? In other words, okay, what is written in the law? It doesn't stop there. He goes right at him and says, how do you understand it? How do you interpret Torah? Listen to how the man responds to Yeshua. It's powerful. So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. It's a direct quote from the Shema. You said it this morning. This is coming straight from Deuteronomy 6. And then listen to what he says. And your neighbor as yourself. All the things that this man knows within the Torah, all the things he's devoted his life to studying, we're talking almost 80,000 words in the Torah, over 300,000 letters, over 600 commandments. And this is what he comes away with? He boils it all down to, I'm to love the Lord my God and my neighbor as myself? That is amazing. What did this attorney of Torah, this expert in Torah, what did he realize? He reduced what he studied, he devoted his life to studying down to one principle. One. And what is that? It's love. The love of God and the love for your fellow man. This is going back to the structure of the faith. All things established on the testimony of two. It's all about love. I must admit, I am amazed at his response to Yeshua's question. Now, as we continue, we're going to discover how Yeshua responds to this man's assessment. Listen to what Yeshua says. He said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. Yeshua confirms the man's assessment of what the Torah is all about. It's all about love. The Torah as a whole, it's literally composed, if you will, to promote one thing, love. That's its composition. That's its purpose. That's its intent, to promote love. And given the fact that Torah is really the description, when you think about it, isn't it the description of the character, the nature of our God? That's what Torah is. It's its likes, its dislikes. If that is true and God is love, there can only be about one thing, love. Now, The discourse between the lawyer and Yeshua, it doesn't end at verse 28. We find the the, the lawyer, he has something to add. He's not done with his questions. Listen to what he says. Wanting to justify himself, he said to Yeshua, and who is my neighbor? 
Now, before I show you how Yeshua answers this question, there's something very important I want to point out here. And that is the fact that this man, he knew who his neighbor was. Okay? He wasn't asking the question because he didn't know who his neighbor was. He knew exactly who his neighbor was, at least according to Torah. Understand, this question that the lawyer posed was a rhetorical question, which is clearly evidence, I mean, right here in the beginning of verse 29. We're given the reason why this lawyer asked the question. He asked the question why he wants to justify himself, not because he doesn't know who his neighbor is. Let me further prove this point to you by going back to the Torah. I want to show you the very passage which the lawyer quotes to Yeshua regarding love your neighbor as yourself. And upon reviewing this particular section in the Torah, you're going to see exactly what the Torah describes as a neighbor. There's no ambiguity. There's no mystery. Now, you might be thinking, well, Daniel, does it really matter whether this man knew who his neighbor was or whether he was just trying to justify himself? Yes, it really, really does matter. And you're going to see why as we continue. This is, this is critical that you understand this concept I'm about to show you because it adds the weight and gravity of what Yeshua is really teaching. Going back to the 19th chapter of Leviticus, this is what we read in verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. What a fascinating statement. When you read this, we are literally told, we're given the definition of what a neighbor is. Did you catch it? Let's read it again together. You shall not hate your brother. In the Hebrew, ach, brothers in plural, achim. This is brother. That's the word used. It's ach. You shall not hate, sene, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. But watch what happens when it goes on. You shall surely rebuke your brother. No, that's not what it says. We're given the definition here. You shall surely rebuke your amit, your neighbor, which is to say your companion, your fellow man, your friend. And so neighbor is defined right here as a brother, as a brother, all right? Now, furthermore, there is something else I just want to point out here before we continue to verse 18. This word, amit, that's used as, in the English, it's, it's translated as neighbor, it is actually translated in the Septuagint. Now remember, the Septuagint is the Greek version of the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. When they took the Tanakh and they translated it hundreds of years before Yeshua, this is the way they translated the word right here of neighbor, this amit. It is translated as placion. And look at the definition here. It's a, it's a the short definition. This is a neighbor. It's a friend. Any other person and where two are concerned, the other, thy fellow, man, uh, thy neighbor. According to the Jews, most important part here, any member of the Hebrew nation and commonwealth. That's exactly what we just read in Leviticus 19.17. Speaking explicitly of a brother. And this is the way it was translated into the Greek as placeion. Now you may say, well, what does it have to do with anything? It has a lot to do with it because the very word that is used when the man asks Yeshua, who is my neighbor? Go look at it. It is placeion. It's the very word, placeion. All right. So with that backdrop, let's go back to Leviticus 19, verse 18. 
You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. Is there any question to what's being spoken of here? The children of your people, but you shall love your, ah, Amit, your neighbor as yourself. There is no question, there's no ambiguity here in regard to what this term neighbor refers to. Understand it refers to God's chosen one, to the children of Israel, to the children of God. The experts in Torah questioning Yeshua knew this. He knew that according to the Torah, his neighbor was his own kinsman. It was his own brethren. And this is going to play a significant role in understanding what exactly Yeshua is teaching in this as we continue. So, with that backdrop, let's move on to Luke chapter 10, verse 29. But he, meaning the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Yeshua, Who is my neighbor? Listen to Yeshua's response. Then Yeshua answered and said, a certain man went down from Yerushalayim to Yericho. Okay, so the first thing I need to point out here, why would any man be in Yerushalayim? That's, that's one reason. People went up all year round to Yerushalayim to worship, to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why they went there. It was a house of prayer, Right? There's no question. If you're going to Jerusalem, you're going to worship. You're going to worship. So there's no question. This man is up there worshiping. He's on his way back to Jericho. And with that said, this is what happens. And he fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Continue to verse 31. Now by chance a certain priest came down the road And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. This is interesting. So here we have a Jewish man. He was worshiping at Jerusalem, making his way back, probably back home to Jericho. He falls among thieves who beat him senseless, leave him for dead. And now we have this priest who comes down the very same road. And yet Yeshua tells us that this priest, he doesn't stop to help his Jewish brother. A man of his own flesh and bone. He passes by on the other side of the road. Now keep in mind this. The Kohanim were the most highly decorated people in all of Israel. They were the direct descendants of Aaron. These were men who graced the inner sanctum of the temple. These were men who interceded. Their job was to intercede on behalf of Israel. They were the ones that made atonement for the sins. God orchestrated the Kohanim for just this purpose, to bring Israel into right standing with him. They were the connector. So that's what the Kohanim did. They interceded on behalf of Israel. These were men who taught Torah. The people of Israel sought the law of God from their mouths. They held positions of great authority. They were judges in the highest of matters. They held positions in the Sanhedrin. Think about who this guy is. Direct descendant of Aaron called for the very specific purpose to help his fellow brethren, to to put them in right standing. And yet, this priest passes by on the other side of the road. He does not help his neighbor, his brother. That's not the end of the story. We continue in verse 32. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked. Not that he didn't see him. He came and looked, and he passed by on the other side. Again, understand, we have another highly decorated man of Israel. The Levites 
were literally given to the children of Aaron. They were set aside. They were separate from all Israel. They were sanctified by God for the purpose of ministry. They too were teachers of Torah. They assisted the priests in sacrificing. You look at who this man is. Highly decorated. And yet, what does he do? He too passes by on this side. He doesn't help the man. And this is amazing. And then we read this in verse 33. But a certain Samaritan as he journeyed came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So, a priest walks by, does nothing. A Levite walks by, does nothing. And now we read that a Samaritan walks by, and what does he do? He's cut to the heart. He has loving kindness. He has love in his heart. He shows this man compassion. That is amazing. You have to keep in mind something. Again, keep the context of what Yeshua is saying. It was readily understood in the first century when all of these things were active. Unfortunately, over the centuries, you lose some of this flair, some of the weight of what is being said here. But let me help put this back into context. You need to remember, Samaritans had no dealings with Jews at all. They were at odds with each other. They did not get along. Samaritans were actually considered unclean foreigners by Jewish people. Samaritans, just to give you a little backdrop, they didn't believe that Jerusalem was the place where one was to worship God, where one was to offer sacrifices. They believed that when you go into Deuteronomy, you see this, that as the children of Israel entering into the land, they were commanded to put the blessings on Mount Gerizim, proclaim the blessings from there. The Samaritans said that is the place where the blessings were proclaimed. That is where we need to worship the Lord God. That is where we need to sacrifice. And yet we know that wasn't true. And this is part of the rift between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. The Jews looked at the Samaritans as the off-scourging of Israel, as deniers of truth. I mean, that's just a reality. The Samaritans had a very unique belief system. They didn't believe in any of the prophets. They didn't believe in the writings. Like we have the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevim, the Ketuvim, right? The prophets and writings. They didn't have any of that. Samaritans only accepted Torah. And they only believed in one prophet, Moshe, Moses. So you can see they, they had a very, very unique belief system. But the simple point I want to make, just giving this backdrop there, the off-scourging of Israel, Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans. And yet, when I read this story, it amazes me because it's the Samaritan who stopped to help this Jewish man. And when you read what the Samaritan man does for the Jewish man, who absolutely would have had nothing to do with him, you can't help but remember those words Yeshua spoke in Matthew chapter 5. Look at what he says in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you. Is this not the context of what we see in this parable? It is. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Can anyone venture to guess what Yeshua is doing here in Matthew chapter 5? He's teaching Torah. This is what he's doing, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He is teaching the most intense teaching of Torah you will ever read in your life, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. 
He's teaching us what it means to truly keep Torah. He's teaching us love. Unconditional love. Amen? One of the most profound quotes I've ever read in regard to the Bible was made by a man, I think everyone's probably heard of him, Samuel Clemens. He's more notably known by his other name, Mark Twain. Listen to what he says. This is amazing. It ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. (laughs) Truer words are rarely spoken. All those metaphorical passages, passages that are prophetic in nature, passages we pour over, some with understanding, some leave us scratching our heads and we're left with conjectures, right? We're conjecturing all the day long. The Bible is filled with prophetic mysteries. And yet I can tell you, it's not those parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do, right? The most simplistic parts. Parts where Yeshua tells me to love my enemies. Simplistic. It's the hardest part of Scripture. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. As you continue on in chapter 5, he tells us, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, it's the parts that I do understand that bother me. Going on to chapter 6, unless I forgive my brother his trespasses against me, I will not be forgiven. Yeah, it's the parts that we understand that should bother us. They are the hardest to keep. Think about that. Going back to this parable in Luke chapter 10, verse 33. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Verse 35. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. Just look at what this Samaritan does. He doesn't just stop by and give of his time. Okay, He doesn't just pick the guy up, brush him off, and say, you know, Godspeed. But rather, he bandages his wounds. He pours oil on him, his own oil and wine, not somebody else's. This is coming from his own resources. Sets him on his own animal. He brings him to safety. And not just that, but he utilizes his own money to ensure that his needs are met. And whatever more would be required, he was willing to cover. In other words, this Samaritan man utilized every resource that God had given him. He was willing to be plundered. For the sake of helping this man who was of a people known to despise him. I want you to ponder that context for a second. All of this because he was moved with love. It makes you wonder when people describe us behind closed doors. How do they describe you? Is it Samaritan-like as we read about here? Or is there other descriptions? You read a story like this, it cuts you to the heart. Now, listen to what Yeshua says next. And remember, he's speaking to an expert in Torah, a Jew who would never have defiled himself by dealing with a Samaritan. Listen to what he says. In verse 36, we read, So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Remember, what is a neighbor? It is his brother, children of his own people. 
That is his neighbor. And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Yeshua said to him, go and do likewise. Now this is where understanding Torah's definition of neighbor comes, uh, becomes extremely valuable. According to the Torah, a neighbor was likened to family. And what does this expert have to say in regard to this Samaritan man? An unclean foreigner. He identifies the unthinkable. He states that it's the Samaritan man who was truly a brother to this Jewish man who was left for dead. It wasn't the priest. It wasn't the Levite. It was a Samaritan. This Samaritan was considered family because he had compassion, right? Right within this story, we are given the secret. For us, we're given the secret of what it takes to become a child of God, to be considered part of the Lord's family. We're to love our neighbor as ourself. Listen to what Yeshua says in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. The standard couldn't be set higher. The bar couldn't be set higher. Here you have the king of kings and the Lord of lords humbling himself, clothing himself in flesh, coming to the earth, not to be served, but to serve. He is our example. And even the fact, I mean, this, this chapter, if you read John chapter 13, he makes the statement after he did what? Washing his disciples' feet. And they couldn't even, Peter couldn't get his mind wrapped around that thing. But Yeshua did it, leaving us an example of how we are supposed to follow him. What a true disciple of his looks like. Total servant, total humility, total love. So he says, Love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It is the very proof that we are disciples of Yeshua when we move in love. Proverbs 19.22, I love this. What is desired of man is kindness. In the Hebrew, chesed, loving kindness. That is what is desired of man. You want to wonder what God wants from you? You know, always the people, they put their spacesuits on, they're floating in outer space. I don't know what the Lord wants from me. I don't have any direction in my life. Yes, you do. You are kidding me. The Lord desires loving kindness. That is your mission. That is your goal. Go and love others as Yeshua has loved you. Very simple. Hosea 6.6. 6. I desire mercy. Interestingly enough, that is the same word, chesed. I desire loving kindness and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than the burnt offerings. If you want to please the Lord, this is what it's going to take. If you want him to take note of you, you're going to have to do as the Samaritan did. Amen? Apostle Paul in his letter to the Galatians, he sums up like this, an expert in Torah who is testing Yeshua. He sums up Torah and one false soup. And he says in Galatians 5.14, for all the Torah is fulfilled. Now there's no question, law hasn't been done away with because Paul's talking about fulfilling it. But what does it look like to fulfill Torah? All the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Being Torah observant is all about love. You do not 
understand love if you do not, or you don't understand Torah if you don't understand love. Love for your fellow man. You have no understanding of Torah. You don't understand what Torah requires. You can study it till you're blue in the face, and you can come up to me and quote a thousand different scriptures that you've committed to memory. But if you're not walking in love, you understand nothing. You know neither the Torah nor the Torah that was made flesh. One of my, or I should say my favorite Talmudic passage ever is commentary on Torah. It is commentary on love. A very powerful passage. I want to share it with you. On another occasion, it happened that a certain heathen, this would fall into the category of a Samaritan, Gentile, came before Shammai. Now, Shammai was a famous, okay, Shammai was a famous rabbi. There was two schools of thought during the age of Yeshua and his day. Primary schools of thought, Hillel and Shammai, they're known. So this Gentile comes before Shammai and said to him, make me a proselyte on the condition that you teach me the whole Torah while he stand on one foot. Thereupon he repulsed him with a builder's cubit, which was in his hand. So he shoes him off. He doesn't even engage in that conversation. When he went before Hillel, he said to him, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. While the rest is commentary, thereof go and learn it. Torah, all of it. Again, going to 80,000 words, over 300,000 letters, or 600 commands, can all be condensed to a razor's edge. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. This is powerful. This is exactly what Hillel says here. It's exactly what Yeshua teaches. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul teaches. It's exactly what the attorney who presented himself before Yeshua, testing him, said. It's powerful. You want the power of God to reside inside you? The secret is embrace love. Embrace compassion. This is where the power of God is. This is where victory is. This is where sin is conquered. Let me give you an example of this very thing. In 1 John 4, 16, we read the following. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is so are we in this world. Verse 18, there is no fear in love. I'm going to say that again. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Here we see that the power of love, what does it do? It conquers fear. Let me tell you something. After years of speaking with countless people regarding the struggles that they have, the trials and tribulations that they are going through, I can tell you one of the most prolific battles that people have to, have to fight, one of the nastiest forms of bondages I've ever seen is fear. It cripples people. It causes spiritual paralysis. This is exactly where Satan wants you to be. He wants you to succumb to the fears that he is peddling because he wants control. Satan wants to control every single one of you. If you do not believe that, you are, you're delusional. He wants 
control. And one of the ways he gets this is through fear. Control your mind, control your thoughts, control your actions. Understand something. Fear is going to cause you to walk outside of the commandments of God. Fear is something that prevents you from walking in victory. It's one of Satan's greatest ploys to take us out. It's because of fear and insecurity that people lash out at one another. It's because of fear that people don't tell other people about Yeshua. It's because of fear that we fail in marriage. It's because of fear we give our souls to our employers, allowing them to dictate our lives. We end up compromising the commandments of God for the sake of financial security. It's because of fear we give our children to the pharmaceutical companies. I could go on and on in the various ways fear is destroying us from the inside out. But if we embrace love, I promise you, you will overcome those. You will overcome fear. You will walk in victory. Put your trust in Yeshua. It's the power of love, amen? 1 Peter 4.8 Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Think about this statement for a second. Think of the, about the power that is being spoken of here. Our love for one another is going to cover a multitude of sins. That's power. That's true power. Now, if, if you're a newer believer, I want to be clear on something. This is not to say that you and your actions in and of themselves have the power to wipe away sins. That's, that's not what is being said here. You are not the Messiah Yeshua. There's only one that can do that. But l I'll let James explain it a little bit better. This is what James says. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. This is the power of love. It's our love that pulls people out of the fire. It's our love that is going to save a soul from death by encouraging, by strengthening others to walk in righteousness, by us going out and bearing one another's burdens, bringing them back to the feet of Yeshua so that they can be forgiven, so that they can confess their sins. The question is, is do you have this power? Is this power literally flowing through you? Do you have the fire of Torah burning in your heart? What did Yeshua say in Matthew 5? Let your light, your light, your fire, let your light, your fire shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Power, light, fire. Love is the difference between experiencing God or just reading about him. When you think about it, love is the difference between life and death. Love is the difference between victory and defeat. It all comes down to love. I'm going to close with the most famous passage on love, at least in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. It says, love suffers long. And the way this is written, it's, it's poetic. It's poetry and motion. It's beautiful. Explaining to us what love looks like. It suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely. Are you doing these things? Are you puffed up? Are you behaving rudely? Do you parade yourself? Know this, you're not walking in love and you are powerless. You have no power. Does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, 
does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Verse 7, bears all things. I want you to think about that. Everything that gets thrown at you, you bear it. You have the ability, you have the power to go through it. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In other words, all those promises in Scripture that we have, we do not fail in our faith. We don't second guess it. We believe it with all our heart. That which God says, he is faithful to perform. Amen? His word does not return to him void. Endures all things, love never fails. How many of you like to win? Does anyone here like to win? I like to win. Okay? Have you ever played a game in my house? I'm going to win. My daughters, when they want to play with me, and they're just little innocent daughters. I never let them win. This is my opportunity. This is my opportunity to show them to have that humble spirit and be gracious losers. Because I am not going to lose. I like to win. Let me tell you something. If you like to win, if that is burning in your heart and you do not want to fail, you don't want to lose in this life, you need love. That's it. Because love, look at this, verse 8, love never fails. You think about passages like in Isaiah 54, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Love cannot fail. I think about that and you realize all the powers in love. Everything that you do when you operate in love will stand. It will stand. It cannot fail. That is a beautiful promise. Test the Lord in it. Walk in love and see what happens. Shabbat Shalom.